0: Jesus launched his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 with a short and simple proclamation, repent the kingdom of heaven has come near. From the very beginning that was the message of Jesus, that was the mission of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven had come because Jesus the king had come. And all of Matthew's gospel is an unfolding for us of what that kingdom is like as we see what the king does and we hear what the king says. And what do we see? We've seen so far in Matthew's gospel a kingdom of healing and wholeness and humility. We see a kingdom where little ones are lifted up, where proud oppressors are thrown down. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness and purity where sin is cut out and cast away. It's a kingdom of mercy and of grace where vengeance is rejected and forgiveness is offered again and again and again and again. Jesus says his kingdom will grow like a seed, it will work like yeast, it's like hidden treasure and precious pearls. It's a kingdom where the blind see and the lame walk and the hungry are fed and most of all it's a kingdom where sinners are welcome at the table of the king and Jesus the great doctor makes them well. The kingdom of heaven has come near and it is glorious But it's not the only kingdom in town. In the 4th century, the bishop of Hippo, Augustine, described two kingdoms that exist side by side in the world. Two kingdoms, he says, have been formed by two different loves. The earthly kingdom by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The earthly kingdom glories in itself. The heavenly kingdom glories in the Lord. One seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. In Matthew's gospel, we see these two kingdoms in confrontation with one another. Jesus comes and there's a clash between the earthly kingdoms of self-interest and self-righteousness and just plain old selfishness. And we see that confrontation and conflict ever increasing as we come to the beginning of Matthew 19. In verse 3, we're told the Pharisees come and they test Jesus. That's the same word used as the devil came to test and tempt Jesus in the wilderness. From Matthew 19 onwards, we are seeing a cosmic clash coming to a head between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. This clash, of course, will climax as the earthly kingdom conspires to kill King Jesus as they nail him to a cross. But even that, we discover, is a victory for the kingdom of heaven as Jesus lays down his life to offer mercy and grace and forgiveness for all the sin and the selfishness of this world. That's what we're going to be thinking about together over the coming weeks all the way up till Easter. We'll do a chapter by chapter through Matthew's Gospel each Sunday. And I'd love to pray the Lord's Prayer for us um, as we come to this passage before us today. So please join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. So, before us today in Matthew 19, the coming kingdom confronts the ideas of marriage and money. The cosmic rule of Jesus reaches right down into the domestic affairs of everyday life, our relationships and our resources. So let's think about marriage first. And I'm sure you noticed as we read that the teaching of Jesus cuts across pretty much everything that our culture teaches today about sex and sexuality. You ready? You might hear today that gender is interchangeable or even a harmful social construct. Jesus says, in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. The slogan of our cultural moment is, love is love, that marriage is for any two people who love each other. Jesus says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they will become one flesh. The world today will tell us that marriage and sex is a private affair. It's nobody's business but mine. But Jesus says marriages are joined together by God. He cares deeply about them. And they are of public concern. They ought not to be tampered with by mere human beings. The world today says that you deserve to be happy. And if your marriage is no longer making you happy, then you should get divorced. Jesus says that divorce is a great tragedy and should be sought only in rare exceptions. The world today says that sex is a human right. That to live a full and satisfying life, you need to have sex. And to deprive someone of that is cruel. That all you need is consent. But Jesus says that outside the covenant of marriage, complete chastity is what God requires. It's pretty incendiary stuff, isn't it? And a lot of people would say today that the Church needs to move on from these old fashioned teachings of Jesus and get with the times. But I hope you can see from Matthew nineteen that Jesus was never teaching a sexuality of the times. It's not like his disciples were nodding along and saying, Yeah, Jesus, that's it. They hear Jesus teaching on marriage and they say, Well, if that's what it's all about, then I'm I'm out. Jesus' teaching confronts his Jewish disciples, it confronts the super-religious Pharisees, and it's certainly out of step with the ideals of the Roman and Greek cultures of Jesus' day as well. Jesus himself, he says, not everyone can accept this word. What was hard and weird in the first century is still hard and weird today. And from the outset, a Christian view of sex and sexuality has always seemed to come from another place and another time. And so we ought to entertain the possibility that our culture, our highly sexualized and individualised culture, just might not have it all figured out when it comes to sex. And perhaps Jesus is the one person who speaks sexual sanity into a sexually confused world. Now, that doesn't make the teaching of Jesus any less hard. Still weird, but that would make it good. And so today I want to draw our attention to three aspects of Jesus' teaching, which are hard and weird, but are very good. So firstly, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19 restrains male sexual dominance. That, I believe, is the revolutionary heart of what Jesus teaches here. Because if you were a first century Roman male, there were really no limits to your sexual expression. It's telling that there is no Latin word for male virgin. It's just a total category error. Men were expected to express their sexual desires and women and slaves and even children were expected to meet them. Now, the Old Testament, of course, held men to a much higher standard. Jesus does, after all, refer back to Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible. But even in Israel, men had claimed for themselves a greater sexual liberty, often at the expense of women. That's what the Pharisees had done with the command of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses gave permission for divorce and the law-abiding Pharisees, they took it and ran with it. What's the question they ask? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Any and every reason? That's pretty broad, isn't it? These Jewish men had latched onto a law and taken it as license to ditch their wives on a whim. And in that culture, that would be terrible for a woman to be abandoned in that way. These religious men were using a good law from God as a cloak for their own wickedness. They had figured out that they could be as free as a Roman man and they could claim it as righteousness. But Jesus calls it what it is, a perverse failure to live according to God's will. That's why he takes them back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, to the way that God made marriage and sex, the Creation of this one flesh union between a man and a woman. And when Jesus speaks of one flesh, he's describing two things that have to be held together. There is a union of bodies that happens in sex and there is also a union of lives that happens in marriage. And those two things can't be torn apart. The one flesh act of sex belongs in the one flesh relationship of marriage. What Jesus teaches ought to be the death of casual sex and of careless divorce. I want to say to the young men among us today or any man who is not married, unless you are willing to commit your whole life to someone, to give them all of yourself, then you have no right to their body. To the married men among us, Your wife does not exist to gratify your sexual desires. Together with your wife, God intends for you to serve each other and to move out to serve the world together. Now, of course, the same applies to unmarried and married women as well, but Jesus' teaching is meant to curtail male sexual behavior in particular. These are the men he's speaking to here. There's a guy called Joseph Heinrich, he's an evolutionary biologist and he's written about what has made the West such a unique culture and he puts his finger on Jesus' teaching about marriage as the thing that has transformed our world. He puts it quite evocatively. Jesus' teaching by establishing the institution of monogamous marriage reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. Jesus says... Men cannot use women to satisfy their own desires and then discard them when they are no longer required. He calls men instead to self-control, faithfulness, commitment and service. And if you're not up for that, then sex is not for you. That's what Jesus teaches. Faithfulness within marriage, chastity outside of it. Some people would call that narrow. I want to call it exalted. Sex is not a plaything. Jesus says sex is a sacred thing, a gift given by God to bind a man and woman together so that they might love each other faithfully and serve the world fruitfully. Sex is a holy fire and handled rightly, it can radiate beautiful warmth and light into the world. But isn't our world discovering that when it is handled carelessly, it is a dangerous and destructive thing? It is a good thing that Jesus restrains male sexual dominance. And then the second thing we need to say is that Jesus recognizes also the reality of sin. Jesus does proclaim the ideal of Genesis 1 and 2, but he's not blind to the fall of Genesis 3. Jesus knows about the hardness of human hearts, that stubborn resistance we have to listen to God and do what he says. And he also reckons with the fact that the whole world is scarred by the effects of human sin. Yes, God made us male and female, but some in this broken world are born as eunuchs. And some are made eunuchs, not by their own choice, but by the sin of others. Paradise, this is not. That's what Moses' command was always recognising. The allowance for divorce was a gracious concession from God that sin can sometimes ruin a marriage beyond repair. That's no trivial thing. That is a great tragedy. And it's not to be seized upon and celebrated. It's a cause for sadness. It was not so in the beginning, Jesus says. But he recognises that it is sometimes so now. And so he allows for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. See, sex is a good gift from God. When used rightly, it binds people together. But wrongly used, it becomes a sledgehammer which breaks a marriage apart. That sin can sever the one flesh union. In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul speaks about abandonment when one spouse just completely leaves another as that same thing. The severing of the one flesh union. And I think the same could be said about persistent and unrepentant abuse. That kind of abuse defaces what God has designed. It denies and destroys the kind of union that God desires. And so I want to be very clear at this point. If you are here in this room tonight and you are in a marriage that is abusive and unsafe, this teaching of Jesus does not require you to stay in a place that is harmful and dangerous to you. And especially if your spouse takes a passage like this and uses it to say, you have nowhere to go, you can't leave, then they are playing the role of the Pharisees. See, that's what the Pharisees do, isn't it? They take God's good words and they twist them for their own self-interest. That's what Jesus is standing against here. And here at St. Mark's, we don't want to be standing with Pharisees. We want to be standing with Jesus, lifting up the least and the last and the lost. And so if you take that very courageous step to speak to someone about that kind of thing, we want to take that very seriously. We will not dismiss you, but we will listen to you and we will help you. You can speak to any of the pastors or the overseers. There are also some signs around the church that have other numbers. Please use those if you need to. Now, I also want to say that if you take a step like that, it doesn't mean that divorce is inevitable. Jesus recognises the reality of sin, but he's not resigned to it. The coming of his kingdom means that there is the possibility of repentance and restoration and reconciliation for even the most broken relationship. But that can't happen. It won't happen unless sin is brought into the light, called what it is, confronted full in the face, and carried to Jesus to be healed. It is a good thing that Jesus recognises the reality of sin. And then thirdly, Jesus relativizes the importance of marriage. It's important to say that Jesus here is not teaching a kind of bland conservatism, you know, the importance and priority of the nuclear family. No, Jesus has a profoundly progressive vision that's not just shaped by the beginning of marriage, but the end of marriage. That one day, when Jesus' kingdom comes in all of its glory, marriage itself will pass away. See, when Jesus used the language of becoming a eunuch, he was not being needlessly provocative. He was deliberately calling to mind Old Testament prophecy. I think that's what he's doing, referring to the words of the prophet Isaiah. We read this in Isaiah 56 from verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that's better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. See, in the beginning, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Through their one flesh union, they would fill the earth and subdue it. But with the coming of Jesus' kingdom, there is a new principle of fruitfulness that's not governed by sexuality. It's a spiritual fruitfulness. And with Jesus, there's the possibility of family, which is not bound to biology, but is governed as the gospel goes out to all the world. Think marriage is not everything. Marriage was always given as a picture of a greater reality, a signpost to the love of Jesus for his church. And now Jesus has come and that greater reality is here. And there is in the kingdom of heaven an intimacy and a satisfaction which far surpasses even the happiest human marriage. And that intimate union with God is freely offered to all who come to Jesus and trust in him. And so, whether you are married or not married or divorced, whether you feel like singleness is something that's been thrust upon you or it's something that you've chosen for yourself, Jesus promises true fullness, true fruitfulness to be found in faithfully following after him. Now, all of that is very hard to hear for our world today. It's very weird. But to those who know the love of Jesus, we know that it is very good indeed. That's the kingdom and marriage. Now, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to think about coming kingdom and money and you'll be glad to know this will be much shorter because of course money is not something that we struggle um, to use in an unselfish way. <laughs> Just a little joke. I remember going to church with my parents and my dad would often say when we were leaving oh, that poor bloke who had to make the announcement about money again. I think it's embarrassing and awkward these days to talk about those kinds of things. I think our culture has the same opinion about the activity in our bank accounts as we do about the activity in our bedrooms. Nobody's business but mine. I think that's what this young man thinks as he comes to Jesus. He's sincerely seeking eternal life. He wants to know God. He just doesn't think his money has anything to do with it. But Jesus brings the man's money right into the equation. If you want to be perfect, Jesus says in verse 21, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In this statement, Jesus shows how the man's attitude to his money reveals what he lacks. And I think he lacks two things. Firstly, he lacks a positive love of his neighbor. See, Jesus' command, did you notice, is not just give away your things, it's give it to the poor. Jesus is calling the man to extend the horizons of his obedience. See, it may be true, the man hasn't murdered anyone. But has he used his resources to enhance the life of the people around him? See, he may not steal, but is he freely and um, lavishly generous with what he has? He may honour his father and his mother, but does he really love his neighbours? And not just the easy-to-love neighbours, but the neighbours who are in the greatest need. God's commands are always driving to that fuller and deeper expression, not just refraining from certain acts, but positive and proactive love for other people. That kind of love is expansive, and it's often quite expensive. And it's a love that this man lacks. And he also lacks a positive love of God. Notice that Jesus in his list leaves out the commands that have to do with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol. But that's the real question that Jesus now raises. Does this man really love God in that way? Or has his money subtly taken God's place? When push comes to shove, does he really want eternal life? Or is he satisfied with all of his stuff? Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a very emphatic statement. No one can serve two masters, he said. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That teaching comes to life as this man walks away from Jesus. He needs to choose God or money. Tragically, he chooses money as his master. He gives up the glory of treasure in heaven in order to hold on to his earthly possessions. His love of self has led in the end to a contempt of God and a denial of Jesus. So what does this man lack? In leaving Jesus, he lacks everything. Money can do for us many things, can't it? Izzy and I were just joking this week that our response is often, let's just throw cash at that problem. It's easier than, you know, taking responsibility or something like that. Money can make our lives easier. can open up possibilities. We can purchase solutions to our problems and some measure of security for our future. But Jesus tells us here that money cannot buy us entry into his kingdom. In fact, money is an obstacle that bars the way of entry. I didn't have a camel to test out what Jesus says, but a camel through a needle, that sounds hard. Now, don't you think all of this is particularly applicable to people like us who live in this time and in this place? Do we use our money for purely selfish ends? Or do we use the God-given resources that we have to positively and proactively give life to people around us? Do we use our money to honor God, to build up his kingdom, or are we using all of our stuff to build little kingdoms of self? Has our money, have our possessions subtly taken pride of place in our hearts? Are we so used to buying whatever we want, whenever we want, that we deep down think that we can actually buy our way into heaven? Are we serving God or serving our money? Do we really love Jesus? Or are we more in love with our stuff? And if Jesus walked in that back door right now and said, people of St. Mark's, take all you have and give it to the poor, Would we joyfully do what he says and follow him or would we walk away sad? They're searching questions. It's no wonder that the disciples again are shocked. They were greatly astonished in verse 45 because like the teaching of Jesus in regards to marriage, Jesus' teaching about money is extreme. Who can possibly live this way? We might wonder. Like the disciples, we should be asking, whoever could be saved? Jesus' answer is pretty brutal. With man, this is impossible. He does not give us a glimmer of human hope that we can do anything for ourselves. But he offers us something so much better. The hope that God himself can give to us what we cannot earn or deserve. With man, this is impossible, Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. See, we can't live this way, but Jesus can and he has. We can't save ourselves, but Jesus can and he has. And I just want to finish today by showing us how Jesus is the one good man who fulfills every demand of this chapter in order to give to us everything that we lack. See, who is Jesus? He is the true faithful husband. He remains faithful to us, even in our unfaithfulness. See, all people have turned away from him and spurned his love, but he does not send us away or cast us out. As we read in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And Jesus is also the true eunuch who becomes a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. See, as Jesus moves towards the cross, he gives up everything that the ancient world counted for manhood for the sake of establishing his kingdom. Jesus turns the other cheek instead of retaliating. He loves his enemies. He submits himself to torture and humiliating mockery. He is silent when he is charged in court. He gives himself voluntarily over to a shameful death on the cross. He gives up all the comforts and glories of family life. Jesus never marries, he never has children, he never enjoys the comforts of a home because he's pursuing the kingdom of his father and isn't it wonderful that right after speaking of eunuchs, Jesus is surrounded by children, he welcomes them and blesses them and even today Jesus' family continues to grow as people from every nation hear the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. And Jesus is the true, rich, young ruler who takes all that he has and gives it to poor sinners like you and me. 2 Corinthians 8-9 reminds us that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the pattern of the gospel revealed by King Jesus. You lose your life, In order to find it, faithfulness is the way to fruitfulness. Giving up all things is how you gain everything. The last become first. It's death, then life. It's the cross, then resurrection. It's the impossible made possible through Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, let us give up the way of weary striving. Let's abandon the meager glory of self and receive the glory of King Jesus. Let's come to him like those little children and the gates of heaven then will open up to us as wide as the arms of Jesus. Humbly ask for his blessing. He will gladly give it and then you really will lack nothing.